1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman, and today I'm joined by Andrew Milner to discuss his recent anthology, Again, Dangerous Visions, Essays in Cultural Materialism. The anthology collects over two dozen essays of his, stretching back to 1981 up to the present, and covers topics ranging from the sociology of literary studies, political and theoretical transitions of leftist politics, and the politics surrounding science fiction. Milner is pr- Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at Monash University, and is the author of over a dozen books, including Reimagining Cultural Studies and locating science fiction. So Andrew Wilder, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Uh, so before we dive in, uh, could you maybe introduce yourself to listeners really quickly and just tell us a bit about what your main areas of research are? Yes, yeah, sure.
0: I'm I'm originally by training a sociologist uh, in Britain, in fact, with the London School of Economics. But I immigrated to Australia in 1980, which is a very long time ago now. Uh, and uh, I moved slowly into comparative literature as a discipline. So that's the field, I, broad field I work in, as a sociologist of literature, actually. And I'm I've been particularly interested in science fiction and, and in climate fiction uh, the last uh, last decade or so.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Um, so to start off, the essays or the book's subtitle is essays in cultural materialism. Uh, This term was coined by Malvin Harris and then developed by Raymond Williams. Um, That term is likely unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. So to start off, can you maybe give a brief introduction to the key elements of it as a framework or methodology? Yes,
0: sure. Uh, I'll I'll make a slight comment first. Uh, Marvin Harris is certainly the first person to use the term, and so in a sense he does coin it in in, in anthropology as a discipline but I don't think williams or or anybody else much in literary and cultural studies knew Harris as a so I think there's a sense in which Williams coins the term too, but only but a few years later uh, and it's williams's usage that i'm that I'm mainly working in because like williams i'm a, I'm a sort of sociologist of, of literature um, uh, what what Williams's version of, of of cultural materialism means and there are similarities, by the way, between Harris and Williams. They both think there are important insights in the Marxist tradition, and they both think there are important flaws, which need substantially modifying. So they are analogous, but I think they're slightly different. Um, the crucial idea in Williams, which is, as I say, analogous to that in, in Harris, is that, that culture itself can be considered as a material practice, a material practice produced in institutions. Now, to me, that sounds obviously true. But when you need to situate it in terms of a much longer intellectual history, in which um what if you think back at at english literary criticism uh, or at literary studies in other in other countries for that matter in germany in particular the idea had always been that literature was something that was completely independent from and, and opposed to the material world and that's a philosophical or, or superior to uh, and if you look back you can see echoes of that in a philosophical tradition that includes hegel and plato uh, and indeed, lots of Christian thinkers. The ideal is is superior to the material. Uh, on the other hand, there are there are there is a long-standing materialist tradition which which sees ideas as a, as a kind of reflection or a consequence of material practices, a direct consequence. And I think you can see that in 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 Hobbes in England. In fact, in the long-standing English tradition of utilitarianism, uh, Hob Thomas Hobbes and Uh, and uh, Jeremy Bentham, uh, uh, to some extent, John Stuart Mill. But also you can see it in certain kinds of Marxism, especially in Engels, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure Marx is guilty of this, but he was certainly represented as being guilty of that uh, by subsequent Marxists. Now, what Williams wants to argue Uh, And he's not alone in this, but he's one of the key figures, is that actually all those aspects of culture, literature, art and so on, they are themselves manufactured in material institutions, and they in themselves have material causes and consequences. They're not an effect of an economy somewhere else. They are themselves an important part of the material world. Now, that's the approach that I've always tended to take towards literary studies.
1: Uh, Does that answer the question? To kind of move into some of the more specific stuff you write about, um, early on you write that there is a certain polarization between literary with a capital L studies and cultural studies, particularly in terms of both what counts as a text worth studying and how those texts should be approached. Can you unpack this debate a bit and where, given your background and research interests, you find yourself in it?
0: Yes, yeah, sure. Um the first thing to say is that literary, the contemporary cultural studies really grows out of literary studies. Um, but cultural studies, I mean, in the broadest sense of the study of media and so on. Um, if you go back, you, you, the, in, certainly in, in Britain with Raymond Williams and Richard Hoggart, in France with Roland Barthes, uh, in Germany with the Frankfurt School, Adorno and Horkheimer and so on, what you find is a discourse that really begins focused on on literature and the other arts, but then slowly broadens its scope to to look at mass media texts, very often looking at them in a fairly hostile and critical fashion. Uh, Now, now that is the move, uh, but not not always hostile, by the way. It was very hostile for Adorno and Horkheimer. For Williams and Hoggart in Britain, they were quite sympathetic to the importance of working-class culture. Uh, So that the... the, the, that's how cultural studies tends to develop in those certainly in those three countries and and also uh, later in, in Australia too and in, and in, I think in the United States um, the the certainly Williams and Hoggart too had had, in, had, in, had always intended cultural studies to be about both elite culture and popular culture it was about literature but also about television and so on. Um, but but as as cultural studies has, has developed and expanded and become institutionalized in higher education itself, what you find is that it it increasingly focused only on mass culture uh, and that prompts a kind of theres a, there's a, a rift between literary studies and uh, and media and cultural studies, which prompts a backlash uh, certainly from some of the more uh, elitist forms of um, of of, of of literary studies i i think the the, where, the bit you 're citing is where i'm talking about harold bloom uh, and bloom's the western canon is a strong reaction against cultural studies there are lots of others as well um and it, it's because this of the, the, the sense that cultural studies is is, is it's kind of academic populism it, it, it's, it's a relativist now where do i stand well i i i, I clearly stand with Raymond williams. In And Richard Hoggard. I, I think the important thing is that is that is that literature and all the other art forms, including the popular art forms, including the mass media, are all social institutions. that can all be studied sociologically. Um, I, I think that I think that has always seemed to me to be fairly obvious. But but that's because I see I'm not actually trained in literary studies. I was trained in sociology, and I have the kind of approach towards social institutions that you you pick up as a sociologist. I think Williams. Himself, although trained in literary studies, eventually really remodels really himself as as a kind of sociologist. But I started as a sociologist, so I, I I found it easier to come to this position. That literature is is a social practice amongst many other social practices.
1: In one of your essays uh, titled "The Protestant Epic and the Spirit of Capitalism," you turn to the poet Milton and his epic poetry to make sense of certain. Currents around the nature of the subject, trying to find the source of the bourgeois idea of a rational, independent individual. You also then develop this in relation to Milton's later question, that between advocating political quietism and activism. So two-part question here, what was the main thrusts or thrust of Milton's idea of the subject? And what sort of politics did Milton draw from this?
0: Right, those are complicated questions. Um, but let me just make a, an autobiographical observation that one of the reasons I was interested in Milton, uh, one of the reasons I still am interested in Milton, is that I, I come from a Protestant background, and he he is a quintessentially a Protestant thinker. So, so part of the answer to your first like, question, his idea of the subject is it is very very Protestant, not Calvinist, but 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 a different kind of Protestantism. But Milton, it's it, 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 it's the, the subject, the, the free subject, the, the subject. It, it's it's kind of analogous to to Rene Descartes, and to the idea of of, uh, of of a discrete, rational individual. This is this is the this is what we are in our essential nature. Uh, we are free. We are reasoning, uh, and, and we we function as individuals, not as as part of a tribe or a collectivity. Um, but this. Free rationality, which is the way Milton sees God as having made human beings, uh, it's it, it, it's it can be threatened, threatened internally by the passions, uh, so, so that if we give way to our passions, then we then we lose our capacity to reason, uh, and it can be threatened externally uh, by by tyranny, by tyrannical institutions. Uh, so it becomes. Uh, a, a very um, it, it is very Protestant in its stress on the individual but not Calvinist because there is no determinism here um, but it is also very individualistic uh, in opposition to institutions uh, it, it's not surprising that Milton becomes in fact a revolutionary radical uh, during the english revolution now that's the second that leads me directly into your second question um, because of course milton uh, uh, is um lives through the 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 crisis of english absolutism uh the civil war and the revolution and the republic uh it, the, well, the commonwealth um, uh, as it as it called itself so it's a distinctly revolutionary form of protestantism uh, milton was a a a, a, a a a significant intellectual supporter of of, of the commonwealth government of Oliver cromwell uh, and and before that, a supporter of the revolution d- during the civil wars, um, he wrote the official defences of republicanism and of regicide, the execution of the king. He wrote these uh, both in English for popular distribution in England and in Latin uh, for, for for distribution across Europe. Uh, so he was in many ways the intellectual most closely identified with the politics. Uh, certainly of the early years of of the Republic. Uh, And the monarchy is restored in 1660. The Republic is declared in 1649. Um, uh, um, Milton stoically resists the restoration of the monarchy. He does does, does not. Well, actually, the first few months he's imprisoned. He was very lucky to escape um, uh, execution as a regicide. Uh, but he hadn't actually signed the death warrant, and it was only those who signed the death warrants who were executed. But certainly, it's a kind of it's a kind of radical Protestant re- revolutionary liberalism, if you like, uh, which I suspect is is, is today more familiar to, to to Americans than it is to English people. Uh, I, I I said that a part of my attraction to, to Milton was was my own Protestant background. I have to add to that I'm, I'm I am myself a Republican, which is not a good thing to be in England, but it's much better in Australia. And uh, it's um, it, it seems to me that, um, that that I'm that part of Milton's politics I'm closely attracted to the the utter contempt that he had for Charles Stuart and for the monarchy.
1: Writing on postmodernism, you connect it to what you call apocalyptic hedonism, as well as postwar methods of commodity production. Can you unpack your understanding of postmodernism here, and why do you think Australia was, and given recent events likely still is, emblematic of this understanding of postmodernism?
0: Okay, good question. I, my understanding of postmodernism isn't really terribly original. It's essentially borrowed from Frederick Jameson uh, from the book on postmodernism that he wrote a long time ago, uh, in, in which he argues that postmodernism is the cultural dominant of late capitalism. That uh, the nineteenth the century the cultural dominant had been realism, in the very late nineteenth and early twentieth century, it's modernism and after modernism after the Second World War, essentially, it becomes postmodernism. Uh, Now, it's not just talking about artistic styles, although they are part of this. It's also uh, more background assumptions that come across all sorts of arts and and, and, and philosophies and so on. Um, One key feature is is relativism, aesthetic relativism. Um, uh, And and that ties into a kind of of hedonism uh, in in that... um, a hedonism which which what matters is what you enjoy not what some overarching uh, literary or artistic or religious authority says you should enjoy um now that kind of uh, I, I i think that's true i think our culture is increasingly relativistic and, but it's also an aspect of that is hedonism uh, now I'll come on to why i think that's particularly true in australia but um this happens to coincide i mean with 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 the fear of nuclear catastrophe. Uh, it, it, it coincides with the Cold War. Uh, Jameson dates it from shortly after, shortly after the Second World War, and that is the period of the Cold War, and of the fear, the widespread popular mass fear of nuclear catastrophe, which has been augmented subsequently by other fears, the fear of climate change, um, which... In Australia, plays out as the fear of bushfires and floods at present. So, that, so what I argue is in is, in that essay is that, I say, is that the, this coincidence of 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 a hedonistic aesthetic with an, with a, with the fear of apocalypse, but creates apocalyptic hedonism. Now, I, I confess that, that I, whilst I think this applies in other countries, it, it, it's I'm living in Australia when I come up with this view, and I do think that, that, that Australia fits it very very well um uh firstly australia is it's a very affluent society uh it, it like like the united states it's not it, 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 i mean in the in the early nineteen fifties by far the wealthiest countries with per capita in terms of per capita income on earth were the united states canada australia new zealand uh, i think britain eventually but they they're all above the united kingdom and above all european countries it's a it's a very affluent society it is I think Australia, now I'm talking about quite specifically, it is a very hedonistic society. Uh, we are a culture of, of pagan sun worshippers more than we're Christians. We, um, uh, we're very irreligious by United States standards. We don't tend to go to church very often. We do go to the beach uh, and to watch the football and the cricket. Um, and so that, that, that sense of hedonistic indulgence was something which, which really struck me when I came to Australia um this is this is a, a land of beaches and barbecues um it's also however in its deep culture uh very frightened historically historically Australia was frightened of Japan and china uh because it was uh, an outpost of the British Empire at the wrong end of the planet, surrounded by a, by, by well threatened by uh, by nearby asian powers the, the 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 racism of Australian society was Directed at China in the late nineteenth century, and then in the twentieth, later on at Japan, uh, and and this plays out as a, as as a desperate desire for a, a, amongst the European settlers um, for a great and powerful friend in the first place, Britain, uh, and secondly, the United States. Um, but 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 the sense of threat remains real, uh, uh, and I think it's. It's playing out slightly different way recently, because the threat is is increasingly seen as as as, as that of nature, uh, nature turning turning against us. That this terrible summer of bushfires, which we've just been through, bushfires is what Australians call wildfires. Um, you you call them wildfires. We call them bushfires. Uh, and and we more of Australia's has burned this last summer, which is your winter, than than ever on record. And there is a, a, a mass fear that 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 we are. We are threatened. We were threatened. We are threatened by nuclear war. We are threatened by climate change, and this combination is is extreme in Australia more so than in in, in Britain or I would guess in the United States. Now that's when I when I'm talking about apocalyptic hedonism in that essay, I latched onto Neville, Neville Shute's book novel On the Beach, which is a a famous Australian novel that. that became internationally famous and it is one of the most impressive novels science fiction novels to deal with the threat of nuclear war and my sense about that novel is it embodies very nicely this 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 australian combination which i think is present in other country, cultures too of on the one hand apocalypticism but on the other hand hedonism
1: one of the big topics in many of the fields you engage is in the nature of the author. You write at one point, quote, in Bordeaux as in Williams, the effect of such cultural materialism is to decenter the artist as author so that the central question becomes the dynamic in a relationship between social structure, individual action, and cultural practice, end quote. This sparked my interest because you're bringing up a lot of really interesting dynamics regarding the nature of the author and the subject as being kind of in a certain milieu and the possibilities for expressing agency. So I'd be curious to hear you unpack a bit about these dynamics you bring up and to use your terms, you talk about habitus or structure of feeling. Uh, Can you kind of unpack this a little bit?
0: Yes, sure. I mean, neither of those terms is mine. Habitus is Pierre Bourdieu and and structure of feeling is, is Raymond Williams. Um, and I, I use both, especially structure of feeling. Um, I, I think what Williams means by structure of feeling, he, 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 he's interested in the, the, the way in which, at any particular time and place, uh, the the background assumptions before we get to there's particular ideological positions. The background assumptions are sometimes socially shared and they're not there in other places and times. One of the things he talks about when he's talking about Eng- England in the 19th century is that whether you were on the political right or the political left, um, whether you were for it or against it, you were always aware, conscious of the absolute centrality of the new science and technologies uh, to, the, to the developing culture. Uh, as exemplified crucially about the, the expansion of the railway system. Uh, now, I think, that's very, I think that's very interesting because it, it, what structural feeling does in identifying those, I mean, the, the two terms don't seem to go together. They say structures don't seem to apply to things as intimate as feelings. But Williams argues that, that in fact, they do, that you can look at the way feelings are themselves structured and patterned. Uh, now, now again, as I think I said uh, uh, earlier on, uh, I am by training a sociologist. And sociologists do see all individuals, whether they're authors or, or, or not, as essentially social beings. Uh, if you like, sociology has an in-principle objection to Margaret Thatcher's claim that there is no such thing as society. Society is what sociologists begin with. Um, and uh, Bourdieu, by the way, was a professional sociologist. Williams was a trained in literary studies, but moved in a sociological direction. Um, but what they, what they, what's interesting about them both is they they attempt to reconcile the sociological insight that we are social beings, and with a, 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 a non, with a more than residual sense of human individual human agency. Now, now the, often this this debate is the, this. In philosophical terms and elsewhere, this is represented as a kind of binary opposition. You're either a, a, a methodological individualist in the fashion of economics and much psychology, or you're a methodological holist um, in this fashion of anthropology and sociology. Um, but I think what Bourdieu uh, uh, clearly, although although Bourdieu and Williams both come down on the side of the social, they want to see, nonetheless, the social. As uh, 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 something that uh, that actually facilitates individual agency, it's not merely a constraint. Our our social being both 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 restrains and enables us, and this is true for authors as well. Authors, are, yes, they're exceptional in the sense that they they're unusually good at writing, uh, but on the other hand, like all other individuals. They are, what their capacity to write and what they write about is, is restricted by their social media, but it's also enabled by it. So it's a, it's a form, it enables the agency as well as constraining it. Now, now I think that's right, uh, and I, I think it's a, it's a kind of sociological insight which Bourdieu and, and Williams both share, uh, and which I tr- which my own work is based upon.
1: One figure who looms large over a lot of the last several decades is Louis Althusser. Across a couple different chapters, you trace certain developments in his wake, writing that a lot of the debates around Althusser were expressions of the larger transition from structuralism to post structuralism. So, what were the limitations being encountered in structuralism that other theorists hope to overcome by a turn toward post structural theories of history and subjectivity?
0: Yeah. It's a it's a very com- very complicated question. <laughs> um yeah, yeah, no, I am thinking about it. Look, first thing to say, Althusser is clearly not a post structuralist. Altazer is, is a structuralist almost par excellence. Um, um but he certainly moved in overlapping circles, I mean personal biographical circles, um, with people who became central to 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 post structuralism. He was friends with Derrida um, uh, and um, Michel Foucault was a student of his, uh, so they, so them, and and the, 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 they all start within a, a, a within a broadly structuralist milieu in in, in France, um, and and what I think, Althusserianism, uh, uh, Althusser's particular ideas, especially the theory of ideology, uh, provides a route from from earlier for for many, for, for many. Uh, 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 from from an earlier kind of structural Marxism towards post structuralism, uh, that that's what I think happens. It, it's um, yeah, and that's uh, it, that's that's to do both with Althusser's reception in France, but m- more so towards his reception in the English speaking world, both in Australia and in the United States and, and, in, and, in, and in Britain. Um, uh, now, now what the problem with structuralism in general, and I think I think. The, the, that's the way you, you pose the question, what was the problem with structuralism? Well, it's a, it's a problem with Althusserianism, but it's also a problem with structuralism in general, is that it's massively over-deterministic. Uh, it, it, so, so, some structuralist models uh, are, 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 are so deterministic that there is simply no room uh, for individual agency. And and that, to some extent, I think that's actually true for Althusser. He, he represents... Individuals as essentially the supports of structures. Um, when he talks about uh, interpolation, he's talking about the way ideology hails an individual, hails the individual, so that the individual um, the, uh, speaks the I- ideology. Um, in this, in the structuralist model this version of, of, of society, we don't speak language; language speaks us. And th- now, there's an important insight there that I don't want to simply gloss over, um, but it, but it, but it. It becomes massively over deterministic, and as such, it it, it doesn't really uh, provide much of a way into the questions of, of political or even ethical agency. I mean, there is an an, an ov- obvious obvious irony then that. In in France, at any rate, the, the, before the, this structuralist moment, the key figure had probably been Jean, been Jean-Paul and Simon de Beauvoir and the existentialists, who stressed above all the capacity for individuals to make choices. Now, this, the the the, the and this more broadly structuralist wave uh, moves away from there and suggests that there are no meaningful choices to be made. Now, I think part of the 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 the, the, the the, the dissatisfaction with structuralism is the sense, the sense that 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 one, one need some sense, some understanding of how individuals and groups make choices and how they and how they act. Um, post-structuralism seemed, post, whether Derrida and deconstruction or, or Foucault, Foucault in discourse, uh, um, the, 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 the post-structuralism seemed to offer solutions to this impasse. Um, now, my own view. Is that well? I think Williams and Bourdieu are better, offer better solutions than Derrida uh, and Foucault. Um, but I can see that the appeal of Derrida and Foucault um, was precisely that that we we were able to to move beyond the the impasse of of, of never ending determinism. Uh, one of the I mean, because it seems to me that that, that people. People do know that they make meaningful choices, and they know that there are meaningful choices at the social and political level as well. It's it's not absolute I mm mean, not absolutely so. Of course, uh, we make choices in context, and the contexts are constraining. But nonetheless, the choices are to some extent meaningful. Uh, if if Sartre and the existentialists had overstated the, the role of agency, then then the structurists clearly understated it. Um, and I think. Bourdieu does this. He's clearly re- dealing with Sartre at one extent, and, and Levi Strauss, the the structural anthropologist, as another. Uh, and and in a sense, Williams is also dealing with with uh, frankly F. R. Leavis, um who who would be the the the, the idealist figure in, in 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 English literary studies. Um, but then he's also reacting negatively against certain kinds of deterministic Marxism. So it's it's a it's a, it's complicated. It's a it's a dialectic to to use a, 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 a an old Marxist cliche.
1: You have a fascinating little essay where you discuss the memories and perceptions surrounding the attacks on the American World Trade Center first the American and British bombings of Germany in the Second World War. You find both events to be horrifying and ethically objectionable, but you find there to be a noteworthy disparity in how they have been perceived and interpreted. And you write this as somewhat of both a British and Australian background. So there's another layer added onto your own understanding of the event. What are the dynamics and frameworks you see that direct our perception and understanding of an event like 9-11? And how does it lead, in your view, to a very particular set of solidarities between particular groups at the expense of other potential solidarities?
0: Yeah, this was um it's a very short essay, and it was it was actually given in response to shortly after the 9-11 attacks. It was it was a talk. Uh, and actually, before uh, the United States uh, and Britain had joined in the, the attack uh, on the, the on, on the Gulf War, um, and it's partly occasioned by the essay the, 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 by the thought that um, uh, my own my father had actually flown in, in 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 RAF bomber command during the Second World War, uh, and w- w- was was himself very 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 guilty about the bombing of cities which which he'd been involved in. Uh, what I was trying to say, first of all, is, is that yes, the the the, the, the Al Qaeda attack on 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 the World Trade Center uh, was terroristic, uh, and and and, and uh, because it involves the killing of large numbers of of of, of innocent bystanders, non-combatants. Um, but this was also true uh, of the Allied uh, aerial bombing attack- offensive. Uh, against Germany, uh, such as at Dresden. Uh, my father didn't bomb Dresden, by the way. He, he bombed Hamburg and Berlin, but not Dresden. Um, uh, but it was also true of of the of the uh, uh, Allied attacks um, on Iraq when the war got going. And uh, the, 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 now, what I want to stress, I, I, th- I think I ter- think we've we've come to define terrorism as something that private individuals do, which is odd, since the first modern use. of terrorism, is actually to describe the agents of the French Revolutionary government. Uh, and I, I think we have to retain this sense, or recover the sense, that terrorism is something that governments do too. And mass bombing of civilians is the quintessential example of a terroristic war, uh, or a terrorism in war. Uh, and that's true for the attacks on Germany, but it's also true for the nuclear attacks on Japan. Uh, and uh, What I wanted to get at is, is why do we why do, why why do we not see this when we're thinking about the, the bombing of iraqi cities uh, but we do see it easily why do we australians and british people as well uh, see this when 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 we, when, we, when the 911 is attacked when the when the world trade center was attacked on 911 uh now that that led me to, to think that that part of the problem and and i i i linked um, part of the problem is that is that we all know we non-Americans all know too much about America. And I, in the essay, I link what I call media imperialism, that's, that's the United States' dominant of the, dominance of the international media space, um, with what I call semi-terrorism. Because if you look at the attack on the World Trade Center, uh, it, it was clearly designed to be a media event. The way there's one aircraft hits the hits building and then, there's, I've forgotten how long, but there was a quarter of an hour. There was time for all the television crews to, to, to focus on the tower when the second aeroplane came in. So everyone got to see the, the media event. And that's why I thought it is a kind of... It is terroristic. It kills lots of people. But it was also meant to be a terroristic sign that you actually see it on the television. Um, and, and so I was intrigued by, well, why? what, Why had they done this? And it seems to me part of the answer is because because... Everybody globally, including al-Qaeda terrorists, knew the significance of the World Trade Center, knew the the cultural significance of New York. And then that's also true for those of us in the West. Uh, we, We in the West also knew... Far, far too well these streets of New York. So we were we were, we were able, even though we, we, Australians, Britons were able to identify with what happened in New York in a way that we weren't able to identify with what happened in Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, so 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 it's it, it, both sides. There's a kind of there is a semiotic aspect uh, to 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 the way these things were played out. Uh, one of the clues for this for me was 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 Tony Blair, uh, who was the British Prime Minister at the time, because um, Blair at one point actually actually says that Britain will stand by the United States, uh, by New York, just as the United States stood by by Britain and London during the Blitz. Now, what's fascinating about that is it's not true. The United States was neutral throughout the entire Blitz. Um, Australia stood by Britain, but but the United States didn't. The United States doesn't enter the war, as everybody knows, until Pearl Harbor. Um, but, but I was intrigued. Why, why did Blair invoke this? Why was he able to, to invoke this? And hardly anybody objected to it. And I think the answer is because in media terms, in Hollywood terms, in film terms, this is how we see the Second World War. We see Britain stands alone, and and, uh, then the United States comes in. And that's the way the the movies tend to tell the story of the Second World War. Um, They gloss over very quickly the fact that there were some months in which Britain was allied with the Soviet Union and the United States was still neutral. Uh, um, so, So Blair remembers it that way and most people do so and i'm sure most australians do too so we were we are able to identify with new york you know this of course it, it's we see new york on our movies and our in our television all the time and we are much less able to identify uh with kabul uh, or, or, or with afghanistan or, or iraq um but but that's also what makes new york vulnerable uh because the terrorists knew how culturally salient new york was how the world trade center was the, was the target hit
1: turning to the final chapters where you start focusing on science fiction uh, you have an essay that looks very closely at a couple television shows buffy the vampire slayer and the x files both shows share a number of characteristics, but you're looking at them as, in certain respects, exemplifying the relationship forged in the 1990s between a certain understanding of identity and that identity's relationship to both politics and commodification. Can you unpack what you see going on here?
0: Yes, okay. Uh, I mean, the the link, the connecting point uh, between identity pol- identity Politics and commodification was was really the politics of the Clinton presidency, Bill Clinton. Uh, what what it, it seemed to be that, that both these series, uh, which which uh, which I myself watched and rather enjoyed, um, but but they both seem to be constant with the politics of of the Clinton years. Um, uh, in the first case, case, I mean, the the, the significance of, of identity is 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 identity politics, the an idea of politically correct identity politics, uh, especially with respect to gender and and race, uh, and they are by comparison with earlier TV programs, they they clearly p- play with non sexist and non racist um, or less racist uh, conceptions of identity. Um, now, now, but. It, this, this, these are also linked to, uh, to, to corporate commodification. Uh, that they are themselves corporate commodity products, um, but also there, there is no, there is no critique in, 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 in either of these um, uh, series. Doesn't, doesn't, there's, there's no critique uh, uh, of differences of class uh, as, as distinct from differences of race and gender. So, so what it seemed to me was that was that what the world vision, if you like, that was in, that was played out in 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 both series, uh, seemed to me a, 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 essentially a, 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 an instance a, a yuppie world vision, yeah, young, uppity, uppity mobile professionals. Yep, I don't, don't don't people still say yuppies? I suspect they don't, but it was it was a term you I've used. I've heard the term here. Yeah. There. It was. Uh, it seems. It seems. I um, certainly, if you think about um, Mulder and Scully, the two FBI agents in in, in the X Files, they're they're both um, attractive, young, uh, and 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 yeah, they're they're, they're successful, they're well educated, uh, and the, the 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 program is is constructed against two others. Okay. The, the one are the rednecks they backwards, you know. So you you go out into 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 the into partland into the United States, away from the big cities, uh, out in out, in, out in the country, and there you find some of really weird people. Uh, but it's also against big government because. Um, uh, you don't really trust the the the, the, the senior uh, 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 authorities that that are, that are standing as against the FBI, or even the own uh, FBI's own senior hierarchies. So big government on the one hand, and rednecks next on the other, uh, are, are the sources of opposition. And I think that's true also in in Buffy, uh, uh, certainly in the Buffy episodes that I looked at, um, because I was looking at, at a series of episodes which which were which were uh, uh, about um, a mechanical demonoid. Uh and, and I was relating that to the to an episodes about about a Frankensteinian science in, in the exiles. Uh and so that, that opposition between between that, that kind of yuppie politics seemed to me to be precisely what the Clinton government was about. I mean the Clinton government was was not about delivering anything much to the Democrats um, the working class trade union, labor union base. Uh but it certainly wasn't about identifying, a kind he was delivering on, on g- grounds of gender equality and racial equality. I mean, the whole thing about Clinton being the first black president, um, just because he played the saxophone, was part of an ideology that this is going to be uh, uh, beyond racism, beyond sexism. And it's picked, that, that's picked up, it's renewed in the Obama administration. Uh, I can't think of an equivalent science fiction show, um, but I think it is renewed at a later date, and and it obviously provo- provokes eventually the backlash that is Trumpism. Um, but that's what I was trying to explore: uh, the kind of cultural politics that are, that, are, that, are, that, are, that that the connection between the cultural politics of those two series and and the, and the politics of the Clinton administration.
1: Turning to some broader themes, two of the predominant trends in science fiction writing are utopia and dystopia, which you pit against each other with Orwell representing a certain dystopian vision of the future and other writers like Ursula Ginn articulating and Frederick Jameson theorizing a more utopian vision. So, how do these two concepts function in science fiction, and in what ways do they serve to either open up or close off certain possibilities for how we imagine our current situation and our possibilities for possible political engagement? Yeah.
0: Uh, clearly, utopia and dystopia are, are very important uh, uh, subgenres of science fiction. I mean. It, Crudely, you can say that that the imaginary worlds of science fiction—they're either better worlds, which means they're utopias, or they're worse worlds, which means they're dystopias, or sometimes they're just the same sort of world with a new new invention. Um, But an awful lot of them are utopias and dystopias, and so you can you can identify these these really important subgenres within the genre. Um, I, I, I contrast them analytically um but 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 in the, in the essays in a, in a couple of the essays uh but, but I but I I but I'm not actually arguing for one and against the other i i think there are good and bad examples of of utopias and there are good and bad examples of dystopias as well um uh, the, the the dystopias that are that are, that, are, that seems to me to be most valuable are those that function as warnings uh, and that's and those are the ones that are most politically consequential, and, and and clearly the most famous of those probably is Orwell's 1984. Certainly in in, in the English language, right? Uh, and it was immensely influential on science fiction, not just on literary science fiction, so called, but also on genre science fiction. In the 1950s, you get lots and lots of dystopias that are that are the kind of Orwellian warnings. Um. The, exact, the, 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 the best examples, the most interesting examples of utopias are not those that are kind of facile celebrations of the present pushed forward, um, but rather those that really do explore the possibilities of, 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 of better and different worlds. And certainly one of, I, I would say, that um, uh, a different and plausible worlds. I think Le, Le Guin's The, dis, the Dispossessed is, is a very, very good example of that kind of utopia. Um, which, because it shows the limitations of utopia and the way utopia is threatened as well, uh, so that it's it's a, it's, a, it's and it's been extre- extremely influential on, on on other science fiction. Now, that Jameson is a slightly I'll bring him in here. Um, you you mentioned Orwell, Le Guin, and then Jemison. right? Uh, in the essay, I'm actually disagreeing with with, with uh, and I'm disagreeing with him rather than with Le Guin. Uh, because i actually think that the, the, i think fred Jameson mis misunderstands orwell's 1984 um I, he he reads it as a cold war anti utopia uh, a way of of, of 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 an argument against socialism in fact uh, now i now i think that's a misreading uh, first of all it's not a cold war text it, it it's, it's written it's it's written before uh, nineteen forty eight. It's 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 a right. It's reflecting back on the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. It's not a nineteen fifties text, uh, and it, it's a warning. It's a critical warning, uh, fundamentally against fascism, but also against Stalinism. Uh, and that, that form of warning is it, 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 it comes from a left wing position. As Orwell described his politics, he was a democratic socialist. Uh, and that wasn't an individual eccentricity. He was a, he'd been a member of the Independent Labour Party, which was a left-wing breakaway from the British Labour Party. Uh, and, uh, and he'd gone to Spain and, and fought with the, in the PUM, uh, which was the, the sister party of the ILP during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and Orwell o- simply wasn't a CIA Cold Warrior, although he was represented thus in the United States. He was actually a democratic socialist. That's that I know. That's but that's the that's Bernie Sanders' d- word term. But in fact, Orwell uses exactly the same words to describe his own politics. And I, I think I think Fred just simply misconstrues uh, what Orwell's politics were. And I also think he misunderstands Nineteen Eighty-Four because he he ignores the, the appendix on Newspeak, which is the last dozen or so pages of the novel. And those are meant to introduce optimism into the novel, and they do introduce optimism because they depict, they situate the novel within a world uh, where where Big Brother has been overthrown, uh, where 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 the world once again writes in English, not in Newspeak. Uh, so I, I think I'm a great admirer of Fred Jameson's literary criticism. I just think he's wrong about Orwell, right about Le Guin. Uh, and why I think he's wrong about Orwell, I think it's partly that he, he doesn't explore the, the this distinctively British social context within which Orwell was writing, the context of the British left in, in the 30s and 40s.
1: In the final essay, which you co-authored with J.R. Bergman, Jurek Davidson, and Susan Cousin, you draw some very explicit connections to fiction and climate change. And one thing I found really interesting is how you connect three predominant predictions about climate change cooling, heating, and flooding, to three primordial elements, ice, fire, and water. These three elements feature very prominently, not just in science fiction, but in a variety of other important texts and stories. So are there some key themes you find in these elements running through the history of literature? And in what ways are there archetypal significances or meanings possibly directing our understanding of what climate change is going to be?
0: You're clearly right. Ice, fire, and, and water. Oh, flood is the term that I used, actually, and there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, they're enduring tropes, um, but some are more important and more enduring than others. Um, and uh, the, the one that I think is crucial, the, the, the most fundamental of all the of the, of the three is, is flood. Uh, and the reason for that is, is because of Genesis, um, because of the story of Noah. Although actually the the story of Noah is 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 almost certainly, well, is very probably itself a reworking of an earlier story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, the Akkadian, uh, much earlier uh, Akkadian epic. Um, But what the significance of Genesis though is, uh, 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 and I I think of the Noah story in Genesis is is that it's it's a a crucial archetype because it's so, so important to so many very very large religions. It's it's a Jewish story, of course, in the first place, but it becomes central to Christianity, to, to Islam, to Mormonism, um, to the Bahai faith. So, so that it's uh, um, the story is incredibly well known uh, in many cultures through many different religions, uh, and 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 that does seem to me to be to be to be more fundamental. Than 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 ice stories, which are very—I mean, I, there are hardly any ice stories in the Middle East for obvious reasons. Um, uh, it's even more important than fire stories. Uh, I suspect fire stories might actually have been more important in in Australia historically, um, for obvious reasons. But but globally, the flood archetype is the most important one. Uh, and what I was interested in 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 part there, uh, and uh, and I'm. I'm I worked together with uh, on that story with um, the, the, the three names you meant Rurik and susan and james they were all research assistants with me uh, on my uh, on the um an australian research council funded project on on, on science fiction um, and what we we definitely concluded that, that this was this was crucial that the the, the 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 flood motif and that in and that when modern science fiction gets going in in basic really in England and France in the 19th century, uh, it, it, it really does pick up on the flood motif because it's there in the culture. It's there and available for use, and much more so than, than ice and fire. The ice and fire uh, 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 tropes appear in science fiction. They're, they're mainly in the 20th century, uh, and they appear really not in response to this ancient... Mythology, but in response to to, to the new science, uh, because it's in the late nineteenth century that we we discover uh, we, we we learn about the ice ages, and it's in the uh, late nineteenth late century that we that, that we discover the first models of how global warming might develop. We discover the greenhouse effect, uh, and all of that. They, although these don't directly impact on science fiction, they provide part of its background. So that in the twentieth century. Uh, these are these become gr- uh, increasingly significant preoccupations. For most of the 20th century, ice is more important than than, than fire. Uh, uh, the, the fire is you, know, you get lots of flooding and lots of ice stories. Um, but it's only really in the very end of the century, um, and then in the twenty first century, that 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 that, 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 that fire stories become more and more important. I mean, there, there's an early example of, of, with J.G. Ballard, but, it, but it's nothing like as significant as the 19th century flood stories. Um, and so, so, so climate science actually feeds into uh, the development of, of climate fiction eventually. Um, yeah, does, does that, I, that's, that's, that's the way I would read it. So the fundamental one is the Great Flood.
1: As time goes on, fiction writers are going to continue engaging with climate change. And you even write, paraphrase, paraphrasing Yuan Nisbet, what climate science now most needs from science fiction is a contemporary equivalent to Neville Shute's nuclear doomsday novel, On the Beach. So we already talked about Shute's novel a bit, so feel free to refer back to that for thinking about why it's such a good template for thinking about nuclear annihilation. But I'm particularly curious to hear what, in your view, this ideal climate change novel would look like, and if there are any promising examples you've come across recently that might point us in the right direction.
0: Right. Um, Of course, it must be obvious that one of my reasons for being interested in On the Beach is that it's an Australian novel. Uh, And it's it's an Australian novel that, that was unusually successful globally. Which is you know most Australian novels get, don't get don't get further than Australia. Um, this is quite quite different. It had a, it had a, a, a global impact. Uh, your listeners probably won't remember this. Most of them, I hope, won't. I hope they're young enough to have not, I never heard of it. But it was it was it was a bestseller, a bestseller in hardback uh, and then in paperback. In, not only in Australia, but but quite quickly in in, in the United States and in um, Great Britain. And in Canada, um, it was uh, so. So it's bestseller as a hardback, and then it's, it's it's a bestseller as a paperback. It was translated into many many languages within a, within a, the first few years. It was translated into uh, into twenty five, and it's now many more than um, uh, that. Then, of course, it's 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 adapted for film, it, it, it's for a Hollywood blockbuster, and then for television, uh, and then for radio, uh, and. It, 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 it has, has I think, a, an appreciable um, effect on the movements for nuclear disarmament in the 1960s, but also on the negotiations between the then three nuclear powers, which were the United States, the Soviet Union, a, 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 and Britain, uh, to, that established the 1963 Test Ban Treaty. Now, now, that's what a successful climate fiction novel will look like. It will be best-selling. It will result in multiple translations, especially multiple translations. I should stress this through English and French. You, you need to recognize um, that, that, that um, English and French are the, are the two global languages. I mean, of, of, of the of the, the six largest publishing industries in the world, um, three of them are the United States, Britain, and France. Um, uh, the other three are, 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 are Russia, China, and Germany. Um, but the significance of the English of the anglophone and the francophone ones, is that these are crucial centres for, for, for retranslation. If you get published in English or in French, you're much more likely to get translated into Czech or Polish than if you don't get published in English and, and, and French. So, so, uh, so w- it, the, 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 a successful cli-fi novel will be best-selling. It will be multiply translated. It will be multiply adapted into many media uh, not just movies and television, but you know, crucially those, and then hopefully it will have an effect on policy shifts. Now, the the thing that I would add to that is, I mean, that's just a description of of, of, of how shoot's novel work, how it worked. I'll add in another factor, which is, I I suspect it might well come from the periphery of the world literary system, as Schutz's novel did uh, at the the periphery. Being Australia now, I'll, I'll explain just very briefly what I mean by that. Uh, I have a model in of the. Uh, I develop a model of the world literary system, which is substantially derived from Franco Moretti and Emmanuel Wallerstein, in which the which I talk about the, the core, and that's the six publishing industries I've just mentioned, um, the semi periphery, um, and, and then the the, the and, and then the periphery, which includes Australia, which is you know clearly a minor. Publishing industry. Um, I think one of the odd, uh, one of the odd things about um, the core periphery relations is that although it's the core literary cultures that have the, that, that that have the most power, if you like, much of the innovative and creativity can, does actually come up from the periphery. It's precisely because there's a kind of freedom of movement in the periphery. Um, you 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 adopt the all models, characters, tropes, plots, and so on. But you play with them and adjust them to local circumstances and uh, which i think is what shoot did in a way because shoot responded to the uh, the distinctive apocalyptic hedonism of australian society and that's, that's one of the weird things about the novel you know yes they're all going to be destroyed by nuclear radiation the catastrophe is coming but on the other hand it, before that they're going to go swimming at the beach and they're going to go, uh, uh, go sailing and they're going to have a barbecue and they're going to go fishing uh, they're going to have and enjoy themselves as they as they await this terrible end. Now that that I think was it was a distinctly Australian register which made the novel so much more powerful, uh, and I think something like that could happen with climate fiction. I don't necessarily think Australia at all. It might, it might be from India, um, although I, if Australia keeps having bushfire summers like this one, it, we might get some here. But I, I can think of some uh, examples um I, I think um uh from well obviously uh, from from canada margaret atwood's mad adam trilogy is is extremely interesting uh i i he, the, the um, uh, from india amitav Ghosh's gun island uh, is is a it is an interesting climate novel um none of these has actually made it yet because nothing's made it yet but i'm wondering what will there are a, a number of, um, of, of, of interesting ones from Finland. Uh, Tumenin's *Parantaja* or The Healer, and Emi, Emi Taranta's um, uh, a Memory of Water. It's actually the, the Tiemann's book is the literal translation, but the English translation is A Memory of Water. And here in Australia, I, I think James Bradley's clade, and Alexis writes The Swan Book. Alexis Rad is an Aboriginal writer from Carpentaria. Uh, I, I think both of those are very, very interesting. Now, I'm not saying that, that those are all peripheral texts uh, and they're all interesting climate novels, whether none of them have yet but done what, what Shoot's novel did, and maybe that's now impossible. I don't know. I, I, and I, let me just backtrack. I'm not going to say that um, that only the periphery can produce promi- promising examples. I, I actually think that Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Climate Change Trilogy is it from the states is very interesting although it's it's peculiar how it just hasn't been translated into other languages and uh, and it's peculiar that it hasn't been adapted for any kind of film or television in, in france i think, I think jean marc uh um uh climate trilogy is, is is very interesting uh and in germany uh, there's a the Miva trilogy by dirk C. fleck is, is, is also neither of these is translated into English, um, which suggests that they're not getting very far because um, they, they're not even translated out of the, out of their own or, or not out, not into many other languages. But certainly, these are all there are lots of interesting texts coming from the core and the semi peripheries as, as well as the periphery. Um, but I mean, obviously, I, yeah, I, as it stands, that no text has actually achieved what what, what Schutz did uh and uh, i mean maybe maybe it's wrong to look for an individual ideal climate fiction novel maybe it's just a cumulative weight of climate fictions that will change the way we think about the world certainly that's what daniel bloom daniel bloom the um uh the the the, the, the activist um and blogger uh, daniel just thinks that the more climate fiction the better and maybe he's right but certainly i i do have a sense of 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 what the ideal climate fiction novel would be like. It, we just haven't seen it yet. I, I hope that answer, answers your question.
1: Yeah. So, to kind of close things off, we always like to ask uh, our guests what, if anything, they're working on. And maybe you can talk a little bit about any books you have coming up.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, i'm I'm. As you might imagine, I'm working on climate fiction. One of those three uh, research assistants that that worked with me on 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 that on that last essay, uh, James Bergman. He and I have have, have worked on a book together, uh, uh, which is called Science Fiction and Climate Change, uh, and it's it's finished. Uh, it, it isn't published yet. It's it's going to be published in in Britain by the Liverpool University Press, and I think in the states by Oxford. Uh, and it's due to come out. Um, uh, it's due to come out. Well, if, if it's on if it's on schedule, it's due to come out later, the, later this month. Um, we shall see whether that's actually achieved. Uh, it's the, 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 so they say they say it's going to be printed in in, in mid March, and it should be on sale at a good bookshop near you, uh, maybe in April or perhaps May.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about it? I I know we kind of have been talking about some of the themes that I'm sure should come up, but
0: well, yeah, in a way, the, that last chapter, the, the one that you, you talked about, the ice, fire, and flood one, essentially the, the book is an enormously expanded version of that essay. Uh, it takes the questions raised there. Uh, so it, it does use a world systems model, a core periphery model of how the world literary system works. It also traces back the history of climate fiction to Genesis and the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's in an opening historical chapter. Which looks at nineteenth um, and twentieth century, uh, early twentieth century science fictions, um, and then in the, the the bulk of the book is is is, is a survey uh, of of, um, of different climate fictions. These are, these are mainly from the very late twentieth century and the twenty first century, and it looks at the way. Uh, it identifies six main responses to climate change, ranging from denialism, which and there certainly are a number of denialist novels, um, uh, right through to to uh, uh, to possibly utopian solutions and also dystopian warnings about climate fiction. Uh, and it te- and it looks at uh, texts taken from a, a wide range of, of, of cultures and from the United States and Australia, but but also Britain, France, Germany, India. Japan, uh, China, Russia, uh, Finland. uh, I mentioned Finland. uh, And there are are readings of particular texts, but they're couched in relation to uh, a a, a general model. There's also a chapter, which is a bit too brief, I'm afraid, but there's a chapter on climate fiction in other media as well, uh, which looks at cinema, television, computer games, uh, and rock music, actually, I confess that that, chap- that part of that chapter was almost entirely written by James, as indeed was the bit on computer games. That um, at my age, you're, you're not really up on on rock music any longer. I was, I was, I was, I was big on on Bruce Springsteen, you know, but um, I've, following recent stuff, it's, I've, I've relied on James. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's that's that chapter is uh, is, is, an, is is perhaps a a map of where someone else could go with another book to look at the climate fiction in media other than that.
1: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So Andrew Milner, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.